Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. G'day and welcome back to the second part of our episode with Jazz Diab. Um, We met Jazz last week and got a bit of background on her upbringing, the choice between stage, screen and nuclear science (laughs) and the military and and some of her experiences while in uniform and we look forward uh, in this second part of this very special episode to talking a little bit more about um, the reflections on her military career and what she's done since then. We're only laughing because we would never make Broadway nor be nuclear scientists. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Anyway, someone who could have done either and did do one, Jazz Diab. Let's get on with the show. Well, you, you rose up through the ranks to command the Special Operations Engineer Regiment. Were you forging a new path for female leaders in that highly technical environment, the chem, bio, radiological, nuclear, the response component? I mean, I, I didn't do it purposefully for that, mm-hmm. but I knew that some of the challenges that we, and I'll use the collective we, Special Operations we, will see in the future are going to be super technical and challenging And the only way we could overcome them is by true diversity of thought. And the only way you can do that is getting different people in. Mm. And I knew I was a bit of a weirdo. Yes, my gender's different as well, but I also come with a different skill set. And if I could show other people, guys, girls or other, that um, you could do that, Mm -hmm. then that would be better for the team in the long run. If we just kept getting the same thing, then we'll never be able to defeat potential future adversaries. So leading the Special Operations Engineer Regiment, what was the ratio, guys, to girls? Oh, I used to know this off by heart. Um, I don't remember the stats right off the top of my head, but I know that when I was a young officer in the unit, I was the only female engineer in the unit. There were Mm -hmm. nursing officers and medics and Mm -hmm. adminos. Out of how many? Out of a regiment of about 250. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I left the regiment, we had... Uh, female engineer officers. We'd had our first female engineer soldier come through, which was a huge, Mm. huge Mm. um, win. And we had more around the country that wanted to come join, Mm. which was, I guess, the more exciting part that young women were seeing it as a great opportunity for a career. And you were definitely being pinned up there as a leader in special ops. No doubt that people were inspired and encouraged by you having reached that command level. You wouldn't admit to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just just doing my job, really, and I really enjoyed that unit and the work it did, which but is it, why I wanted But if you do your job poorly, it doesn't inspire. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, it can inspire not. people to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, touche. Um, but not very similar to uh, Monica Georgieva's reflections. Um, she had a, a pioneering pathway as a female infantry officer and, and SA selection and all that sort of stuff. Um, and again... Uh, it is a fact that you and Monica are inspirational figures and are 
pathfinders and trailblazers. But I think both of you have reflected it that that's not why, why you, you were did doing it. it. Mm. Yeah. Um, that, that that is a nice uh, ancillary benefit, but yeah. it wasn't about you being the, the, the sort of first. Um, how did you find, like, if, with all that aside, you yeah. were a, a pioneer and a, a trailblazer, so you were, you were treading some unbroken ground. How did you find it um, as an individual, both in terms of the reception at the grassroots level from yeah. the, the crusty old guys in this traditionally male-dominated environment, but also from the organisational level? To Tim's point, there, you know, it, you are an exceptionally um, uh, appropriate person to have as a, a poster child for for this kind of um, uh, career path for female. Yeah, so I guess because I'd spent the majority of my career in Special Operations Command in many different facets, I had that reputation already there. Mm -hmm. And so the olds and bolds uh, actually sometimes were some of my biggest allies and it was potentially some of the younger people that didn't know my background Mm -hmm. that maybe were a bit more challenged by me coming in as a leader. Um, I, I hope to think that I was able to prove myself just through my work that I was up to the challenge and that I technically understood what the unit did. I personally understood the struggles of the soldiers and officers and their families, um, but also that I was able to support the other units in the command that we needed to provide support to and that Mm. it wasn't just all about us, even though I know most COs just want to have their train set and build a super empire to take over the world. Um, which, of course, I was trying to do every day. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and uh, you used the, the term lucky or fortunate or, you know, and my father, in fact, interesting little segue. You were talking about Topo before and making yeah. maps and um, dad, who joined just after Vietnam and got out just before sort of Timor, had this 30-year career in a peacetime army. Yeah. But a lot of what he did was topographical flying up in Papua New Guinea, another yeah, little wow. sort of link. Yeah. And, um, you know, it sounds... I mean, making maps, whatever. But, yeah, he describes these amazing stories of, of you know, the, the survey work that people were doing, translating that into mapping and all that sort of stuff. But um, he used to say, you know, and this classic cliche, the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. I'm sure there's a lot of that reflected in terms of your path. I mean, you've you've got the tech qualifications, you've got the cred, yeah. you've got an EOD qualification, um, yeah. which, in fact, could you, you talk a little bit about explosive ordnance disposal? Because oh, yeah. that's a very interesting and, and quite rare field. Yeah, it's a field that attracts all the weirdos in the world, right? Yeah. We, we like going... So what is EOD first? So ex- EOD stands for Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Very military term. Um, police forces have them. They call them bomb techs, really. But what uh, EOD tries to do is understand an explosive threat, whether that be from a conventional military munition, like a missile or a rocket or, or a bomb, mm-hmm. through to improvised explosive devices, being able to understand how does that function, so therefore how can I pull it apart safely? Either pull it apart or just dispose of it safely so that uh, people can do their job on the battlefield. And it is a high-stress kind of role. (laughs) (laughs) And look, just for our listeners, um, to to clarify a a very long-standing question, do you cut the red wire or the blue wire? All the wires. <laughs> <laughs> just can't. You could tell when somebody didn't have an EOD background and they'd created the device for you on a task because it would just be a shit tin of wires. And you'd be like, none of this makes any sense. There's no chain here for me to follow. It won't blow up. <laughs> it yeah. won't blow up. It's a box. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I was really fortunate that uh, my CO at the time 
put my name forward to go and do the explosive ordnance disposal course in the US. Wow. And they've got an amazing school down in Florida. Happened to be over spring break in Florida, <laughs> which young jazz really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, but it was That's got to be a recipe for destruction, doesn't it? Doing Definitely. Doing shooters all night and then, you know, yeah. cut the red wire the Yeah, next and then going down, right? And it was funny. So um, I was on course with another Aussie. He's a great mate of mine. And I think he just shook his head every night at me going out on the town again <laughs> and then coming back and doing course. But we were the only two that didn't pass out in the bomb suit on, Interesting. Mm. on that day. So You're well hydrated. Bit of sisu, yeah. <laughs> shooting beer bombs yeah, all night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but talk talk about that because I mean that's a whole other level. You talk about high pressure, so you yeah. are in this position where yep. not just is that mission fail, but you blow up, and, yep. and tragically we've seen Australian engineers yeah. die in that context. Yep. Um, but added on top of that, you're in this ridiculous, heavy, hot suit. Yeah. So yeah, conventionally you're in a big bomb suit, and th- for those who've seen the Hurt Locker, that suit is really what bomb techs wear mm. um, but in a special operations context they might not have the ability to take that with them so they're in regular body armour and a helmet and you're trying to bring everything down from that high stress you're about to do something but making a clear decision on what is in front of me and how do I render it safe mm. without killing myself and everyone else around me and really having the confidence that you've made the right decision um, so it does demand of a, a quite a unique individual and the guys who have done that training, unfortunately we haven't had more women do EOD training from an army side, Air Force has been more successful mm-hmm. but it, um, it it really demands someone that is able to be challenged and isn't afraid of failure in training because you learn from that mm. because if you nail every single device in yeah. training you're going to be a pretty rubbish eod tech at the end of the day mm-hmm. uh, you need to learn from failure you need to understand why things um went off yeah so it's a it's an interesting trade yeah um, and yeah. you know an adjunct to that story about evolution of course we were seeing in the later days of both afghanistan and iraq uh, come on attacks deliberately targeting explosive yeah. ordnance disposal technicians yeah. with a, a, a very obvious or a dummy device yeah. designed to get the EOD tech on scene and then another well-hidden device designed to blow that person yeah. up. Yeah, and because the Americans, unfortunately, really, like they lost a lot of EOD techs in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and so the terrorist organisations knew that and knew if they got all the EOD techs off the battlefield it would slow down a lot of manoeuvre yeah. on the ground and force people to do everything via helicopters. Um, Was yeah. it true the devices were technically better in Iraq? Uh, I think they had access to better materials in Iraq. Okay. So it wasn't Saddam producing more engineers that mm, led to that? No. The more technically-minded well, people? I mean, they did have access to a lot more technically-minded people, but most of it was they were able to get materials in that were a lot more sophisticated. It was a bit harder for um, the Taliban in Afghanistan to get a lot of materials in because there was so much Mm. control in the country. So it's quite rudimentary what they were making stuff out of. Although I do remember there were some weird ones where some very sophisticated EFPs, explosively formed projectiles, factory made. Yeah. um, Out of, yeah, potentially third countries that were were funneling them in. Yeah. In Iraq. 
uh, in, in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah which was very different end. to the the sword blade pressure plate. You know, the yeah. the agricultural level technology that we often saw. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, as a really quick aside, uh, that that Hurt Locker is a um, really enjoyable movie. Does it portray the experience? Um, oh, it Hollywoodizes AOD yeah. big time. But I think what I took from it is the feeling of deployment and coming home and wanting to deploy again, I think was 100% spot yeah. on. EOD stuff, not as accurate. Even yeah, though yeah. I'm pretty sure it's based roughly on, on a bit of a rock star tech out of the US who was a bit of a loose cannon. Um, yeah. One of my favourite scenes in any movie that, that I think resonated really with my experience is that one where I think they do a real, what's the what's the cinema term for a, a hard cut or a, yeah. you know, where, where he's, he's diffusing a bomb one minute, the next he's standing in front of a fridge in a supermarket trying to pick yeah. from 14 different varieties of fruit juice. And, and I remember that, that just the speed where you go from this such high consequence, very narrow little existence in deployment to normal life and yeah. it's just so fucking weird it's so weird and your brain struggles to process <laughs> with the dumbest decision right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i can remember doing that at an airport with my sister just picking what i wanted to drink and i'm like i actually don't think i can do this mm. <laughs> it was it was always lukewarm water yeah, like yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it was just the shitty water bottle <laughs> Speaking of which, and this is a running issue we've got in the office here, that, that classic deployment thing where there was one fridge that served, you know, 200 people in a forward operating base. Yep. If you took one of those water bottles, you replaced one. Yeah, of course you did. Thank you. I wanted that to be on the record because yep. we've got the same thing with Diet Coke in our fridge. Oh, really? Oh, good <laughs> there is know. not that, that <laughs> FOB bloody principle of, of take one, replace take one. one. Yeah, take so one, replace listen up, metal office. <laughs> <laughs> You then uh, go to the strategic military level and you're the Chief of Army's assistant. That's not the right term. I know I'm simplifying it. Aide-de-camp. Yeah. Um, how was that experience, being able to look at it from the top down rather than being wedged in the middle at the operational layer, yeah. getting strategic decisions rained down upon you and you having having to implement them? Well, it's interesting because you're the lowest ranked person by a long shot in that <laughs> office. <laughs> and so that's good on... And bad. I mean, I was able to get away with playing a lot of practical jokes in the office. And the Chief of Army wasn't immune to them. He copped a few too. So did the Chief of Navy. Um, Chief of Army at the time was? It was General Morrison, yep, David, David Morrison. Morrison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I learnt a lot from him and how he thought. But it was interesting to see um, the generals of the Army making their decisions and the kinds of information they would take in and the kinds that they wouldn't necessarily, um, but also to see just how much politics plays in at that level. I wasn't mm. aware of that at all until mm. I did that job. Um, I was a bit naive. And Which I think it, this is a really important thing, that it, it is easy at lower levels to say everyone in the C-suite are just more on self-interested or whatever. You know, that's yeah. a real easy cop-out. And it's not until you get an understanding of the pressures, the very yeah. unique pressures that are operating on them. Again, maybe it doesn't make it right or wrong. Maybe no. it is a domestic political decision aimed at pork-barrelling mm. votes or whatever. Yeah. It's still a real-life pressure, and it still forces... You know, we were talking about those decisions that maybe you don't 100% believe in but aren't illegal. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of that that goes on in Heaps a lot of, of organisations. Yeah, mm. and things that are long-term decisions like where a base goes, what kind of 
new vehicle design. Well, yeah, again. what helicopters do we yeah, buy? Do exactly. we buy the one that actually works, or do we <laughs> buy the one that gets jobs in a Brisbane elect? I mean, yep. you know, these are actual decisions. Yeah. And, and how, how much of the decision resi- resides with the chief of army, and how much crosses mm. Lake Burley Griffin into the political realm? Well, I mean, from what I could see. It is a real balancing act Mm. and sometimes it was something government wanted someone in uniform to put their name to where other times people in uniform didn't want to put their name to Mm -hmm. it and wanted politicians to. But, I mean, those generals have no time, right? Mm. They have no time at all. Every minute of his day was blocked out and I'd be alongside him with a briefcase full of stuff and it's just... I don't know how it's sustainable for Mm. an individual to do that. Which and but, not yeah. not dissimilar to a lot of you know C-suite yeah exactly you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. high to mid level managers yeah, where it, the demand on their time is insane yeah, yeah. so uh, David Morrison son of Albie Morrison who was a general as well yeah. um, and tangent how did you <laughs> and him sustain so if what's a normal day look like and and how do you carve out time for yourself to stay fit healthy in good mindset to do this meditation mindfulness bit. What's it look like and how do you do it? So I I didn't have a lot of time for myself. Um, Every minute was essentially dedicated to making sure the boss had what he needed. Starting what time? So starting at about 6.30 in the morning, he'd be in about 7, 7.30 to do all the pre-reading, what atrocities had happened overnight. Hmm. We were still in Afghanistan at the time, so there was a lot of operational reporting overnight. Um, And then that would go all the way through sometimes to dinners, Um, or events in the evening and there'd be lots of travel as well so I think we travelled every week Mm. of the year Um, uh, so it it was hard to find time for me and that meditation mindfulness Mm. a lot of my exercise was incidental lots of walking General Morrison walked super super fast so Mm -hmm. I became a fast walker (laughs) uh, which I still do to this day (laughs) thanks boss Um, and um, making sure that I guess when we travelled I would take some time to to listen to something different, to think mm. about something different. So it wasn't just a hundred percent living and breathing on. Did you sort of fumble stumble onto that technique or was it something that you'd heard about or it had been passed on? I think I've di- stumbled upon it because mm-hmm. I'd never really been conscious about it. It was only I guess the last few years where I've really made an effort to consciously do some mindfulness practice, Mm. do some meditation, focus inwards um, and really reflect. Yeah. Yeah. And that's only... Because it is the definition of psychological transition, particularly Adam Fraser's third space, the the reflect, rest, reset and getting your mind to just cleanse itself to be the best version of you going into the next thing. Yeah. I mean, we, we... Coming back to the acting speaking, David Morrison, renowned for being a a highly polished speaker, there wouldn't be too many days where he's not speaking. How does he stay on? How how, how did you see him prepare for these multiple speaking events per day, whether they were, you know, one-to-one or whether they were more public? Yeah, so that was actually a really lovely time we would have in the car going to whatever event, whether it was going to speak to... Um, staff college or the academy or RMC um, and seeing his thought process, what's the key message I really want to get out here? Mm. Who's the audience? So how Mm. do I need to tailor that? And he would talk himself through that and then get up and nail a presentation. And it was really, like I learned so much from that. He barely had 
speaking mm. notes, like rarely mm-hmm. use them. Mm. Um, really, it's really interesting because a lot of people in those roles, they've got all the knowledge in their head. Yeah. But as you said, nailing that, what does the audience need out of this? Yeah. Um, and even we joke a lot in in our workshops as we prepare for them about this kind of idea of infotainment. I mean, yeah. you can be too protein rich. Yep. You know, we've all been in those PowerPoint decks with the, the quad slides and a million and it's all good stuff and it's factual and there's references and there's research, but it's boring and no one's taking any in. You've yeah. got to have that hook and that, that relevance um, and the context, you know, uh, maybe a resilience workshop for an aged care home and a mind site are trying to say, sell the same sort of message, but you, you want to be tapping into a very different vibe and a very mm. different context. Yeah, definitely. David Morrison famously said, the standard you walk past is a standard you accept. Let's throw him under the bus. What standard did he walk past? Well, I think he actually lived by that. He got to hear some pretty awful stories of abuse that happened in defence by the Human Rights Commissioner in Australia. I might have butchered that name. She came and personally spoke to General Morrison and said, you need to hear some of these stories. Mm. And from that point on, I think he actually really needed to change a culture and knew that he had to set it from the top, that he couldn't pay lip service to it because he was now on watch and was responsible Mm. for the actions of people under his organisation. As an aside, David Morrison's a very good runner, Ben, and on one of the courses in Canungra, he threw down the gauntlet to three SAS captains who were on Mm. course and said, if you can beat my time over this distance, I'll buy you a beer. And it was daunting. We we had to train for the whole course to then try (laughs) and run it on the second last day. Did you do it? Yeah, he won. Yeah, I think three of the four of us beat the time, so he did buy us a beer. So he was my commanding officer when I first got to the 2nd Battalion. And, um, yeah, I, I... pipped him in the, the brigade cross country mm. and I remember getting the, the battalion little trophy thing and right up in front of the battalion, you know, yeah, battalion yeah. cross country camp and I walked up in my PT gear and saluted <laughs> Which without you a hat, not, not in PT gear, yeah, very bad form <laughs> and so yeah, any credibility I might have had through that cross country <laughs> run was immediately evaporated in front of the whole battalion by this rookie skinny cloth armed officer throwing a boxer in his... To our, our singlet. <laughs> let's let's hope he has not forgotten that. Forgotten that, and let's hope he tells that story. Yeah. All right, um, let's transition out of the military to and talk a little bit about nukes. Yeah, cool. Nu- nuclear power. Strap yourself devices. in. Yeah. Well, you you asked the question before that you wondered and still wonder mm-hmm. why does Australia not look at nuclear energy a little more in the light of climate change? What is yeah. the answer to that question? Because in the nineties the government banned it. And the more and more you read about it, the more you understand how much coal had a part to play Hmm. in political decisions. And rather than just not pursuing nuclear and not funding a project, they put legislation in to ban it 
ban it entirely. So, so ban ban what? Power. So currently in Australia, it is illegal to produce power or get yeah, power generation from a nuclear source or from neutrons. Except for submarines. Well, we can mine uranium, part. though. We in some states. Mm-hmm. So in some states, you can mine uranium. In WA, there's and a so is that, that a state-based decision? State-based decision. Okay. Yeah. Australia has a third of the world's uranium resources. We could be really rich from uranium sales, considering there's increased demand in nuclear power across the globe because of climate change. A lot of countries are investing in it. Who who is it put out of interest? So France has a huge nuclear power program. Mm-hmm. So does Canada. Yeah. In oh, our yeah. region, we've got countries like Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia that are looking to pursue nuclear power generation programs. Um, there's so Germany switched off all their power plants and went back to coal and are now realising what they've done and will need to reconsider what they do with their their power. Um, you're talking countries like Sweden, Finland having increased their nuclear generation and also the UAE last year um, commissioned a huge nuclear power plant which is providing a heap of energy across um, the UAE, which mm. is a pretty phenomenal facility that I'd like to go as a nuke tourist to have a look at. Mm. How, what, what's the, you know, because often in, in countries, and certainly Iran's been an interesting case mm-hmm. study where there's nuclear energy programs, mm-hmm. but, you know, suspicion or potential for that to spin off into weapons programs. Yeah. Is it a massive leap from the sort of enrichment process that powers a power station to a, a weapons grade? So old generation reactors uh, need to use high enriched uranium or plutonium as their fuels. Mm-hmm. Which is the same stuff you use in bombs? Which is the same stuff you would... Or similar sort of stuff you would use in bombs. Different kind of... Yeah, yeah, don't get <laughs> Yeah, you want to talk about... Something. Yeah, yeah don't, don't get isotope. <laughs> Draw the molecular structure. <laughs> Just so we can really so understand those play it. at home. <laughs> yeah, um, whereas a lot of the modern reactors now are looking at different fuel types to reduce proliferation, proliferation risks. So, uh, for example, the reactor out in Sydney in Lucas Heights, so the Opal Open Water Pool Light Water Reactor, uses low enriched uranium. Hmm. So it's almost uh, naturally occurring uranium, slightly enriched, that produces neutrons. There are other mixed oxide fuels that take old used fuel, um, recycle it to produce this mixed oxide fuel to power um, different plants. And there's lots and lots of research happening across the world to to figure out different fuel types that reduce the amount of waste coming out the back end, Mm -hmm. but more importantly, use different strands of uranium uranium so that you are not producing weapons-grade mm-hmm. material unnecessarily. So that that's one concern. Mm-hmm. What about the, the I guess, elephant in the nuclear energy room discussion? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the meltdown, the Chernobyls, the yeah, Fukushima's, yeah, yeah. the Third Three Mile Island. Like, yep. how does that happen? And are we in a better position now with modern technology reactors? Yeah, definitely. So if you look at um, Chernobyl, Fukushima... Uh, they are both reactors that are 1950s technology, 1960s technology that, um, so from the Chernobyl perspective, were pushed past their limits by humans. Mm. It overrode a whole heap of different safety mechanisms. But of course, RBMK down. reactors don't explode. If you've ever seen the, the sure. HBO yeah. Chernobyl, it's a wonderful... <laughs> it's a great series. Great series. Yeah. Wonderful little kind of this leadership case study in that control room, you know, yep. this real dictatorial leader and the moral courage of the engineer who knows it's going to blow, but he'll, he eventually yeah. 
cranks it to the point where he knows he's going to blow up a reactor because a guy with a white clipboard's telling him telling, to. Real yeah. Stanley Milgram level sort of authority thing. Anyway. It's, yeah, it's, but the RBMK reactors are designed going against the laws of physics where the fuel, the rods that are put in to slow down a reaction actually have to go upwards instead of downwards. So modern reactors, if you want to kill a reaction in the reactor core, you put your... Um, you, you your ro- control rods. Use a little down. thing I like to call gravity. Yeah, Speaking gravity. Of science. It's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Look. <laughs> Far out. Did you think this was really going to be science? Nine point eight meters per second per second. Come on, let's let's get our high school science all out on the table. <laughs> Do they strap them to cats? Because they always land. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. It's science. What about the other elephant in the nuclear reactor, the disposal of waste? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. How, how do we get around that? So the, the debate's been rigorous. We've got the nuclear subs. Yep. We've then had the whole, well, what's a replacement power source for coal? Yep. It's brought nuclear back to the table, certainly in, in Parliament House Canberra. Yeah. But some of this consequence of doing it is the waste. Yep. What does it look like? How do you do it safely? So um, Environmentally safely as well. Yeah. Noting I'm very biased towards nuclear. Nuclear is the only power source that completely controls its material from start to finish. So it looks after it for the whole of life. Mm. Um, when it comes to nuclear waste, at the end of decommissioning of a reactor, the majority of that material is recycled. Um, the majority isn't reactive or radioactive and requiring waste. It can be used in other... Um, building materials or just put into disposal of regular materials. The the bit people worry just in about... The red bin. <laughs> just in the red bin. Yeah, exactly right. Um, the thing people worry about is the spent fuel. Yep. So 90% of spent fuel can be recycled and, as I said before, turned into other fuel types. It's the really toxic lacthanides and actinides. There you go. That's some super nerdy stuff. Mm-hmm. So that part of the periodic table that sits yeah, at the know, bottom. Yeah, we know. Uh, I, never, <laughs> I never, never got down yeah, that yeah, low. Yeah. <laughs> Californium. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so those are the those are the ones that are harder to recycle and that, that's what we call the high level waste that needs to be disposed of in long term geological repositories. Um, so that, that is just science talk for burying it in a big hole in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Yeah. Securely. Yeah. Okay. So people can't get access to it. Now, in our lifetime, each individual on Earth produces enough spent fuel waste or high-level radioactive waste to fill a Coke can. That's how much power we use Mm -hmm. as individuals. At the moment, with all the nuclear power plants that have been functioning, we have enough of that waste to maybe fill a soccer pitch. Like That's all that exists globally. So we're talking about very small amounts of material. Uh, Yes, it needs to be secured for a long time, and for some of those um, elements it is for a few generations. But the plan is, with a lot of these uh, Gen 4 plus reactors, is to design fuel types that can burn them up. And that's what a lot of really bright minds are looking at. How do we do that? So we can so things like fusion reactors, how can we burn up all the fuel so there's no waste? Um, and so part of the deal of putting waste in a repository is that you have the ability to retrieve it if the technology is right to use that fuel later mm. on. Mm. Yeah. Just mentioned fusion, um, and 
This is absolute ignorance. Um, real quick physics, difference between fission and fusion, and what's the, the sort of holy grail of cold fusion? Yeah, so um, fusion is what the sun does, fusing elements together mm-hmm. to create uh, energy, yep. create light, power, that sort of stuff. Uh, fission, you're splitting those atoms, so you're providing energy bombs. in. Yep. yep, providing energy, and is current nuclear power yep. as well. You're, tr- you're splitting, you're creating neutrons through... Splitting you're splitting the atom. I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, so I'm not qualified That's to talk movie. about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. yeah. Um, so fusion's fusing. Yep. Happens in the sun. Um, yep. Quite hot, as I understand, on the Very sun. Very hot. Yep. Yep. I think they've only been able to... <laughs> I wouldn't sunbake on there. Uh, <laughs> I think they've been, they've been able to stabilise that reaction for maybe a second or something. So mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to stabilise, but they're able to do it. They've had some breakthroughs in the Mm -hmm. last year or so, um, which have been really exciting. But that's the future of nuclear technologies. But that's still what, decades off. And that's the cold pitting, cold fusion. Doing that process at temperatures level and less than the surface Mm. of the sun. Yeah. 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 You're the president of Women in Nuclear? Yeah. Australia. Australia? Can we talk about that? Oh yeah. What is um, Women in Nuclear? (laughs) Does it go by winner? We go by WIN Australia. Win and it's part of Women in Nuclear Global. So mm-hmm. it's a global organisation that um, promotes peaceful uses of nuclear technologies. And uh, Does that include nuclear submarines? Well, this is a great question. So Could be peaceful. It could be peaceful. And that's, I think, a lot of things that the Australian government and the International Atomic Energy Agency have been talking through. Um, if we're using it purely for propulsion purposes, then technically you can say it's peaceful. Mm-hmm. If it's an armed submarine, like yeah, I, yeah. I don't like getting in that debate. But. All those cargo submarines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is, is there a play for um, propulsion for shipping, mm. commercial shipping? I've not heard. Well, funny you say that. You look at all the um, activity across the Red Sea mm. where you get pirates jumping on board, yeah, yeah. big ships. The maritime environment is starting to say, hey, could we have commercial shipping powered by a small modular reactor? And technically, yes, you could. The The issue is in the legalities around it. So what are the regulations? Who would be the global regulator for the safe and peaceful and secure uses of that nuclear technology? Um, I'll give a plug here for Global Nuclear Security Partners. That's one of the challenges we're looking yeah. at to try and see how do we make shipping commercially a, a bit more viable because you could use any route across the world then you're not restricted by some of these choke Bunkerage, points yeah yeah where, where pirates are running rampant gee it's funny isn't it because i mean obviously and particularly the high sulfur fuel oils that a lot of commercial yeah. shipping using is, yep. is very bad for the environment very bad yeah but like you say you know a pirate jumps onto a ship not only gets a cargo but gets a small nuclear reactor that's also potentially bad yeah 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 so crystal balling what's yeah. the future of nuclear in australia Will we embrace it? Will we continue to be... Can we overturn the uh, legislation? Yeah, well, yeah. Le- legislatively. Yeah. And also just public opinion. We've been driven down this path for decades that nuclear is bad, yeah. mm-hmm. it's dangerous, and we shouldn't have it. Yeah, so um, I think more Aussies are wanting to understand more about nuclear. The recent poll, I think that was on Q&A late last year, was about 70% of Aussies are keen to understand more about nuclear and see nuclear in Australia. Um, my personal opinion, if the government lifted the ban today and they use a lot of 
um, excuses that nuclear is too expensive. I don't think it'll be the government that are the first mover and shakers in building this. I think it's our big mining industry and our mm. uh, resources sector that rely on large uses of electricity to to invest in it. And I think they would be the first movers to introduce more modular reactors to Australia, which is what I think is suitable for our environment. Mm. Um, and I think that would be super exciting for Australians. I especially think remote communities, mm. um, communities that have unreliable access to energy, could benefit so much from a nuclear battery or a small modular reactor in their town to allow them to live, to have the internet, to mm. work, to study, to to be able to charge an electric car. Because a lot of people hmm. charge their electric cars through a coal-fired grid. Yeah. You're like, well... May as well just burn that diesel. Mm. Um, <laughs> that, so that was a bit pessimistic of me, but <laughs> <laughs> but it is a point. Yeah. yeah, but but I think there's there is a future for nuclear in Australia. The, the only issue is political at the moment. Mm. I was going to say, in addition to being groundbreaking military pioneer, amazing special operations leader, nerd. nuclear nerd. nerd, nuclear nerd, wannabe Broadway actor, you're also a mum. <laughs> I am a mum. Yeah. yeah. How has that sort of journey gone? You've done all these amazing things from your career perspective, from the academic perspective, novel new challenges. Um, how do they stack up against motherhood? Uh, that's the hardest job I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I suck at it most days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the worst paying job also that I've ever <laughs> had. <laughs> uh, but uh, I am a mum. I have uh, a cute little daughter. Her name's Zoe. She's feisty. She's 100% my child. I look out world when she's a teenager. <laughs> she will be a force of nature. But um, Zoe was also born with a condition called achondroplasia, which is the most common form of dwarfism. Uh, shout out to the short-statured community. You guys are awesome. Um, and that really challenged me. Yeah. I have, I've always been healthy. Um, I've always been around healthy people, especially in the military. Most mm. people you're around are healthy um, I had been very naive to the special needs community and the disability sector, and this has opened my eyes up to how inaccessible the world is to a lot of people. Yeah. And we're getting better. Yeah. Like, yeah. I truly believe we're getting better. Um, there's still a way to go. But it has... Um, the short-statured community embraced us with big open arms, and it, cool. it has been a challenging but awesome journey. Mm. Yeah. Can, can you explain a little more? Sorry, Tim. Um, what is dwarfism? Yeah, so um, there are lots of different forms of dwarfism. The only one I'm really across is achondroplasia, so mm -hmm. the most common form. It affects the large limb bone growth. And mm -hmm. so uh, there's a great professor out of um, the Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and he describes it that um, we have 
a hose watering a garden. If you don't turn the hose off, the garden doesn't have a chance to grow. And that's essentially what's happening to these long bones. The hose is on all the time, so the yeah, bones right. aren't growing. Uh, and and so uh, my little lady will be a little lady all her life. Mm. And most um, people with achondroplasia will grow up to be at full height of maybe an eight or nine-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. And any other sort of obviously the the physical sort of side effects in terms of stature does that come with it any other physical or even cognitive mental implications um so no cognitive or mental Mm -hmm. or social implications people with achondroplasia just like you and me yep yep, yep. um the physically there are other issues they've got some brain stem narrowing so things like contact sports are a big no-go because okay. it's just high risk. Uh, everything's really small, so their sinuses are super small, so things like sleep apnea, yeah. yep. um, those conditions, and especially for kids in daycare, getting ear infections and nose infections, uh, like sinus yeah. infections happen all the time, uh, and super flexible. So, oh, really? Yeah, Zoe and I do yoga together. Uh, <laughs> she is a little rubber band. <laughs> I, I cannot do what she does. <laughs> yeah. Emily, my daughter, who's been looking after Zoe, um, along with my other daughter, Lucy, said that last night that she was blown away at yeah. Zoe's flexibility. Yeah. She was watching her getting up and down and on and off the lounge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, couldn't get her head into it. Yeah, it's amazing watching her navigate the world because um, I'm a big believer the world's not going to change for her. She needs to mm-hmm. learn how to climb regular stairs mm-hmm. and climb up and down a couch. Yes, there are places in our house where we've got step stools and little ropes so she can open doors or switch on lights, but mm. the majority of it is her navigating her way and she does things in such amazing ways. Just ingenious yeah. Just, yeah. workarounds. Yeah, yeah. 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 little experiment. Yeah. Can we come back to the point in which you find out there's a nine-month pregnancy runway? You'd yeah. think that you know this would be identified in scans early on in the pregnancy. At what point did you find out? The day before she was born. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about that a little if you if you're open to it? Yeah, we can. It's and I'll be vulnerable and honest here. It's taken me a long time to talk about this because it was probably a point in my life where everything came crashing down. And I didn't know who to turn to. And my partner was there the whole time. Mm. So he is also grappling with this. But I felt so lonely mm. and that no one could tell me what this meant for my child. Short term, medium term, long term. I'd never met anyone with dwarfism. Um, and I just I didn't know even where to turn to. And I've spoken to other parents who've had a similar sort of story and they feel the same sort of way it's very isolating and it kind of changes what is meant to be the happiest day of your Mm. life into something that you really struggle with Mm. Um, so um you were ill in the latter stages of pregnancy you went and had some tests run and then the medical community quite bluntly somewhat ignorantly and insensitively broke the news how did that happen yeah so i got um preeclampsia latent pregnancy i'm an older lady some might say geriatric (laughs) pregnancy (laughs) i'd like to think it i'm still quite young um so i got quite sick quite quickly and um the doctors were adamant that they were going to perform an emergency cesarean that day my bloods weren't looking good i had a scan booked so i went to the scan anyway and that's when the um the doctor at the uh ultrasound place said hey your baby has a form of dwarfism we think it's chondroplasia 
that was it. Like, mm. I was like, okay, so what does that mean? Uh, is she just little? Um, is, is her brain okay? Mm. Is, is everything else okay? Will she live? Like, I don't know anything. And, and that's all I got was, she's got dwarfism. Good luck. Yeah, mm. Google it. Yeah, and yeah. Google is awful, right? Oh. Like Last time I had a sniffle, you know, you can, you yeah. can do that self-diagnosis, don't yeah. you? Cancer. Cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I can imagine trying to navigate your way in that. Yeah. Like, it's great. There's information, but it's sifting it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, sifting through, finding what's good information. And so um, I had to go back to the hospital to get another blood test, and it was at this point I completely broke down. And the, the midwife, she's an angel, sat down and said, I, I, can you talk to me? What's wrong? Do you not feel okay? I'm like, no, they've just told me my baby's got dwarfism. I don't know what this means. Mm. And I don't think she deserves to be born and have a birthday on a day that I'm crying like this. Mm. She deserves more. My, her birthday should be happy and fun. That's what she deserves. Everyone deserves that on their mm. birthday. And so I really don't want to have a baby today. Mm. And so I need this blood test to come back better because I need to go home. Mm. And the midwife's like, look... Honestly, I don't think your blood's going to come back any better. <laughs> but she went and fought for me, and she was a great advocate, went and spoke to the obstetrician, and they fought for me to have one extra day. Um, so I went home that night and couldn't sleep because I was the size of a whale, but also because there were so many unknowns, and I was yeah. so worried for this poor baby. Like, what would her life look like? And was I up to this challenge? How would we do this? I'm... Um, at the time, I was a full-time military officer. That had always been what I did. Um, and then I Googled, and I wish I didn't Google. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the next day, um, my partner, he's awesome, he he said, hey, today we're having a baby. It's going to be a great day. <laughs> and he set that tone, and from that point on, it was Zoe's birthday. Mm. And um, she got a happy welcoming to the world, and she... Did all the things she needed to do. She cried. She was teeny tiny, squishy in all the right places. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. And now she's almost four and still squishy in all the right places. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to answer that question you were asking yourself the night before the birth, how mm. are we going to get through this? How are mm. we going to do this? How have you done it? Um, we rely on each other a lot. Yep. Um, community is a big one. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the it was actually the physio at the children's hospital here in Perth that put us in contact with other families in Perth that had kids with a chondroplasia, and it was that beautiful community of parents that has helped us get through it. Mm. We ask the silliest of questions, like what shoes do you buy your kid? Because mm. contraplasia have super cute but super chubby feet. Mm. Hard to find yeah, shoes, yeah, yeah. especially when they're at walking age. They're mm. all baby sizes and they're like, oh, no, she needs runners. Zoe um, now wants a bike. Zoe now wants a bike. Yeah. So, yeah, what bikes do you have for your kids? Um, what helmets do you have? Because contraplasia, they've got a, a big noggin. Um, so how do you get a helmet that fits them nicely? And doesn't look daggy because a mm. lot of the... Well, they're still little kids. Yeah, it's still, still a kids. thing. They yeah. want to look cool. Um, and a lot of things in the disability sector, they unfortunately don't make them look as cool sometimes. And you're like, kids want to be kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, so that's how we got through it. Community's the big one, yeah. really mm. big one. We'd be willing to bet that you're not flat-footed on community and furthering awareness. Oh, no, yeah. Maybe oh, explain explain yeah. what you're doing there. <laughs> um, so I, I try to talk to anyone who will listen really about um, achondroplasia and we, through meeting other families, we join other groups, we talk to one another, trying to get um, more young kids together. We've got a few... Um, well, Zoe starts kindy shortly, so being able to talk openly with her school and her schoolmates about what Zoe can and can't do and why mm. and what her superpower is, mm. because that's what it's really about. Everyone's got their own superpower. We're all different. Uh, and how do we how do we encourage everyone to embrace that superpower rather than isolate one another because of that superpower? Mm. Um, yeah. What are you doing for expectant parents? Oh, so anyone we find out who has a kid with any form of dwarfism, we bring them into this community. We add them to this chat. Um, they can ask any question they want. Nothing's off limits. Mm. Uh, and we will tell them the things we wish we heard. I was just going to say, mm. you're, you're providing yeah. that resource you wish yeah. you'd had the night before. Yeah, and yeah. there's a lot on Facebook now too. So Short Statured People of Australia, the SSPA, uh, is an amazing organisation that has lots of different pages on social media to help parents specifically for this and mm. we all we all try to help where we can and um yeah they've they've been an amazing community as well mm. yeah. jazz we often ask people what they do for themselves i want to get a little more mm. pointed um Ooh, because yeah. you have one of my favorite of all time mindfulness sort of activities in terms of crocheting. I love crocheting. And yeah. when you were talking about your, when did that start? I'm, I'm desperately hoping it started as your time of aide-de-camp for, for General Morrison <laughs> that you had a little, as he's in the car, you're crocheting, crocheting, crocheting next to him. I, yeah. I wish, but I, like my mum and grandmother taught me how to knit as a child. So I actually started as a knitter. Sorry to the pure crocheters out there, but um I taught myself crochet during Is this COVID. a real thing, like, you know, the, the knitting? And <laughs> oh, yeah. I imagine you have, oh, like, yeah. sort of dance fights oh, with yeah. the needles or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm a knitter. I'm not a crocheter. <laughs> like, well, I'm a bit of both. I'm Is it like the ski snowboard bi. sort of thing? <laughs> yeah. There's a real kind of purist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But now I can do both. And I started crocheting thanks to COVID, actually. Right. Yeah. Thought I'd, my mum tried to teach me and that didn't work. Sorry, mum. I just, the way you teach me didn't resonate well you weren't ready i wasn't ready that's yep. right mm. uh so taught myself and i love it it's so mindful and you create some amazing things i've also created some rubbish <laughs> <laughs> i actually think i need to bring in uh, all the things i've half done because i've given up on them halfway <laughs> well, what sort of things so i really love making bags handbags yeah right um I find that the most fun because you can use a lot of crazy colours and mm, different mm. fibres. So I like using recycled fibres, yep. a lot of recycled sari silks and T-shirts. And, yeah, it's it's fun. We yeah. need an official Jazz Diab bag. Crochet. Bag. Crocheted yeah. bag for our, for our supermarket runs. Oh, you can follow Atomic Blonde Studio. That's okay. my creative okay. arm. We will link to that as well. <laughs> and speaking of yeah. you two creatives, I did ask Jazz before we came into the podcast studio. You saw the Pronxy spray yeah. painted on the wall. I love it. It's great. Yeah. yeah. And you also had a spray can in hand at some point, did you? Oh, I did a course years ago. That, <laughs> legally. You, yeah, legally. <laughs> legally. I'm not, I'm not spray painting walls. Um, yeah, I did a stencil art 
course. And it was so much fun. I didn't realise how great spray painting is and I kind of get why people get energised by well, it. And it's also the engineering of it, yeah, I think, would yeah, have appealed yeah. to you in terms yeah, of the, the different layers and yeah. you know what needs to go first and the bridges and when you're coming yeah. out the stencils. Yeah, there's a bit to it. Yeah, and the right kind of nib for your can. Yeah. I just thought spray paint cans were spray mm. paint cans. No. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get my head around a hundred sticky taped pieces of A4 paper. That, that was oh, a that pretty agricultural used? way of doing it. Yeah, I think the wow. pros do it differently or they've got better kit, but yeah. yeah. That's awesome then. But it is, it's cool when you look at, I, I, I spoke about um, Elk, Luke Cornish, the Australian artist, and obviously Banksy, you know, yep. the, the way they've pioneered it. And, yeah. and I love, you know, the Banksy sort of story, the, the, the illegality of it and, yeah. and his origin story of... Uh, you know, being chased by police after doing a, a piece and, and sitting under a, a truck while the cops are looking for him and oil dripping on him and thinking, shit, I'm, I'm spending too much time on my work, so I need to cut down the time. And then yeah. seeing underneath the truck, you know, a stencil, you know, yeah. uh, industrial sort of spray and, and getting the, the idea from that. Um, yeah, it's so cool. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. yeah. The Unforgiving 60 podcast has the Unforgiving 60 playlist on Spotify where we ask our guests, what's your power song? Ooh, my the song you go song. to if you need a bit of a rev up, you need to break your PR in whatever the activity is that we're doing. So I don't, I don't think it's, it's a song that centres me, which mm-hmm. allows me to get power. It's um, Sound and Colour by uh, Alabama Shake. Sound and Colour by Alabama Shake will be included yeah. on the Unforgiving 60 playlist on Spotify. I've not yeah. heard that song. We'll check it out. It's quite eerie, but it like it centres me. I Yeah, it makes me want to be a human and Love do good it. things. What is it about that song? Uh, I think it's the... It talks a bit about isolation and then just wanting to be with people. Mm. Um that's, I think, the bit that resonates with me. And it sounds cool. I like it. Consider it in there. Latest edition. Um, Jazz, wonderful conversation. Thank you. We've covered yeah. a lot. And yeah. I think, you know, part of that reason is because you've lived, lived a life less ordinary, which is, is sort of what we try and, um, and angle for in this podcast. But, yeah, kudos for, for everything you've achieved. Oh, thank yeah. you. And what's super cool is the kids' TV program that you can might be able to subtly hear in the background as Zoe's outside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My digital babysitter for the day. <laughs> Perfect. We'll, we'll get out of this little sauna and yep. um, get you back to Zoe. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks Jess. Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence and would love your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, let us know. You can get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Until next time, we wish you luck in filling your Unforgiving 60s with some quality distance run. Stop.
turned around.